Proposition. These are the first citizens of contingency. Far from the doctrinaire past of the old ones, they think in their prudent meditations not about ecstasy, the soul leaving the body, nor enthusiasm, the God entering one's person, nor even about sanity, which means health, an impossible perfection. But ponder instead relative truth and the warm dusk of amelioration. The cautious young augurs with their family life, good books and records and foreign cars, believe in amelioration, in that and in suffering. There's an exchange in James Hillman and Michael Ventura's book, We've Had a Hundred Years of Psychotherapy and the World's Getting Worst, where the Jungian psychotherapist and his screenwriter cultural critic Buddy make an interesting distinction between madness and insanity. Before I share this exchange with you, let's do some etymology. The word mad arrived in the 14th century to replace the old English wad with its suggestion of being possessed and frenziedly so. And yet, every idea is a kind of possession if you think about it, a possession which often needs to be told, like this one. Earlier still, we have the Proto-Indo-European wet, which means to blow, inspire, or even spiritually arouse. And that becomes in Latin vates, the seer, the poet, along with the Old English wath, which is literally a sensation perceived by the ear, wath, also carrying the meaning of sound, melody, song, and even the word, word itself, wath, word. I don't know. <laughs> That's the way it feels to me, right? Language, essentially, you could say, is mad. And of course, if you want to hear that mad voice, it is not the so-called lunatic asylum you should hasten along to, but to a poetry slam or a gig. By madness, I mean I mean here the, the heart-wrenching cry of grief or jubilation, as told in the music of Blind Willie Johnson or even Kylie Minogue. And let's be clear, this is not insanity, which is from the Latin insanitas, unhealthful, unsound, diseased. Although our culture deems almost anything in or unsane these days, insanity is a somewhat distinct category, as is disability. If I can't stand up to greet you, if my legs don't function in that way, no linguistic jiggery-pokery will free me from that fate. But who is to say if madness, the out-of-our-mindness of madness, the beside-our-reasonable-selves-ness of madness, the madness of sex and substances, including here alcohol, nicotine, caffeine, sugar, and social media, who's to say if these are not deeply necessary in some ways? the madness of all of those things. And of course, those people who are hell-bent, as we all are, on having those state-shifting substances, well, they're not interested in the saying or the telling anyway, are we? We all 
desire state shifts that make us a tiny bit mad, which is to say a tiny bit different from the state or mode that we were in before. The state shift of writing and reading, of singing and dancing and sex, or as Robert Pinsky puts it in his poem, Essay on Psychiatrists, the shrinks, and I would include myself in this category, don't for the most part seem to be that interested in ecstasy, the soul leaving the body, or enthusiasm, the god entering one's person, but rather relative truths and the warm dusk of amelioration. What a great phrase that is. Relative truths and the warm dusk of amelioration. Thank you, Robert Pinsky, for that. The amelioration, presumably for, for want of a better word, the agony of consciousness. Um, you know, that's what it boils down to. That's what a client very honestly in our consultation session a few weeks ago recognized. It's the agony of consciousness that assails and assaults us at times. <laughs> That's the amelioration, right? And <laughs> I guess the reason, dear Mr. Pinsky, why us shrinks focus on relative truths and the warm dusk of amelioration is because, well, that's what mostly pays. With therapy now being our dethorned secular rose, the secular rose of religion, in other words, I don't know, a soul for the soul, an infrastructure of meaning, giving us a sense of illusory control. That's religion. You could say that's therapy. Surely then it's sermon's need in order to provide the soul sort a focus on relative truths and the warm dusk of amelioration rather than ecstasy and enthusiasm. I don't find people are that interested in talking about ecstasy and enthusiasm as a solution to the problem of existing. Of course, there used to be many more evangelical strands and contingents of shrinkery, uh, rolfing, sonopuncture, neurolinguistic programming, moxibustion, structural integrations, and many, many more. But a trade bodies like the BACP and the UKCP have, at least in the UK, and I'm sure in America it's the same, have by and large put paid to most of those nutty, which is to say ecstasy, enthusiasm-focused, um, ritualistic therapies. I think this is also where the two other old boys are heading, Hillman and, Hillman and uh, Ventura, that is. So Hillman takes up the baton to begin with, and it's a dialogue, so I'm just going to read the dialogue. And uh, so this is Hillman. Hillman goes... I think in order to protect yourself against insanity, you must every day uh, propitiate madness. You must take your steps towards madness and you must open the door toward the mania. Let it in. That would account in my mind for a great many forms of what we call addiction. These are ways of trying to open the door and to let the madness in, whether it's getting drunk on a Saturday night or sitting for hours drinking alone in a melancholy to let Saturn in, whatever, these are modes of letting the madness in. And in a sense, they keep us from going insane. And we don't know that distinction. And then his friend Ventura <laughs> starts singing, 
this Waylon Jennings song. I've always been crazy, but it's, I'm not going to sing it. I've always been crazy, but it's kept me from going insane. That's a Waylon Jennings song. Hillman then says, crazy means cracked, the cracks that let things in. It's not smooth. It's not safe. So what do you do then to let the madness in? What do you do to keep from going insane, but to let the madness in? Ventura says, what do I do? Hillman says, yeah, what do you do? Ventura, you mean other than hard whiskey, fast women and loud music? Or is it fast cars and loud women, hard women and straight whiskey? Could you repeat the question? I think you do one more thing, and I think I do too. And I think that's part of what our book is about, that we try to go out on a limb, Ventura. Oh, yes. Hillman, we try to go to unsafe places. We, we risk with our minds. We risk, Ventura, with our work, in our work, whether that work ultimately stinks or not is for others to judge, but it's risky. That's a fact, Hillman. So we go... <laughs> Ah, I like the fact that there's fireworks going off outside as I'm reading this. Yeah, 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 yeah. Send those fireworks in for this final line from Hillman, which goes, So we go toward madness. It doesn't have to just break in. It's hard not to eavesdrop on these two without some kind of self-inquiry going on. Something like, you know, how do I let madness into my life? In what ways does it break in? And in what ways do I purposefully seek it out? Taking risks with thoughts or words or exchanges or substances or however the human animal does that. And as we know, we can, we can kind of take risks with everything. If I remember correctly, Donna Tartt's Secret History and many other novels for that matter take on this theme of people trying to let some salutary madness into their lives. Um, literature, ecstatic rituals, um, you know, Dead Poet Society, another example just come to mind. People who often end up being punished in some way, though, for doing this, for their madness. Um, either by um, punished by committing insane acts or becoming insane, which is to say fully unaware of themselves, completely unmoored from conscious, socially accountable self-responsibility. That would be my definition of insane, by the way. Are you insane? Okay, well, would you agree that you are at the moment... Uh, fully unaware of yourself, completely unmoored from a conscious, socially accountable self-responsibility, then you are insane. And I, honestly, I think we all experience little flashes, little moments, maybe even long moments of insanity all throughout the day. It's a somewhat domestic state, um, which the word psychosis does not fully or rather scarily, I was going to say, does not fully encompass, but I would maybe better say scarily um, sort of puts that experience into a concentration camp and then punishes it. So if that's insanity, well, the former mode, the former mode of madness, which is not to say insanity, seems to be foundational to our awareness of ourselves and of others. This, whatever it is that we call consciousness, you know, this 
I recognize myself as this so-called person here writing, saying, or doing maybe these mad things, but but I'm aware of the fact that I'm doing, and I might have an opinion about them, or I might not have an opinion about them, but I'm aware of all of this going on. Or it might sound a little bit more conflicted, like I recognize this side of myself responding maybe fiercely, uh, anger, passion, avoidance to something out there in the world or in myself, and I don't know what to do with this. I don't know uh, what this part of me is. Is um, I don't have full control over it, but I'm I'm aware of what it's doing. Whereas those who are classed or who class themselves, but it's usually those who are classed as insane, the relationship between oneself and another seems to be more othered. So it's like those mad bits and pieces um, aren't aware of each other as they step onto the stage of our psyches. Whereas in the sane person, they are. That would be my working definition anyway. And I think Hillman spells out the quid pro quo when uh, we he try to negotiate these mad sides of ourselves. So again, coming back to Hillman, Hillman says in this dialogue, so letting the madness in becomes for you how you ban the gods by giving to them. I'll repeat that. Letting the madness in becomes for you how you ban the gods, you're not allowed, by giving to them, by giving something to them. Presumably these are the gods of insanity. You keep them from possessing you by giving something to them. And Ventura then goes, yeah, but it's a, it's a dangerous game. And Hillman says, isn't it a dangerous game, though, to close the door and sit on the sofa and depend on the locks to keep the madness out? Ventura says, mm, much more dangerous because the madness is a lot stronger than it looks. And then Hillman goes, I think the way of letting it in to most of our lives is pathology. The symptoms come, the marriage fights, the crazy child, the overspending, the drinking, the piling up of debt. Ventura says, the dependence on TV, the compulsive schedules that eat your life, the endlessly repetitive family feuds. Hillman, what goes on in the house is the pathology. Now, when therapy tries to cure the pathology, instead of seeing that the pathology is part of the crack or the broken window and that something is trying to get in, then it seems to me it's creating more pathology and keeping the gods even further away, and then they break in through the whole fucking society. Ventura says, if we don't let the madness in, then collectively the society goes mad for us, and that's called history. So in the long run, there are enormous collective consequences for all these private evasions. Hmm. Of course, this discussion is much older than the 1980s in which it happened and then presumably was edited in, in, into this somewhat sui generis book, you know, a book which feels both written and spoken. It's a really interesting little book. Um, and I love it because it has little concern for upsetting the sacred cows of psychotherapy. These are also my sacred cows. Uh, even though the conversation occurs between a psychotherapist himself and his comprehensively psychotherapized pal. In our Western setup, this 
discussion, this discussion that they have, that they are having, uh, perhaps began in Greek mythology, embodied in those two divergent siblings, as siblings often are, Apollo and Dionysus. The cool hipster psilocybin and ayahuasca-friendly Dionysus, bad-mouthing his straight-laced and faced borderline incel or maybe even born-again Christian Apollo, Sib. Nietzsche's genius was to turn the bros in the story, the myth that is, into psychological archetypes exemplifying the two divergent aspects of human nature, the Apollonian and the Dionysian. The Apollonian aspect represents our rational side, and I would go so far as to say our human side, the prefrontal cortex, the most modern part of our ancient brains, developed to put a civilizing break on our animal instincts and our animal desires. And no shade on the animal, because that's what we are, human animal. We recognize the Apollonian within us as a desire for tranquility, predictability, orderliness. Not that these are non-animal traits, it's just that language in the form of thought often fools around with these civilized instincts. Consider the Donald and consider Joe. They're never going to catch us, they can't catch us. Our nation is shaped by the constant battle between our better angels and our darkest impulses. And what presidents say in this battle matters. They can't catch us. The Dionysian aspect of human nature, the Donald, represents our irrational side, our attraction to creative chaos and to passionate dynamic experiences, the madness and the insanity. According to Nietzsche, the best art and literature reflect a fusion of these two tendencies, and the best life reflects a fusion of these two tendencies, which is to say some kind of controlled passion. Nietzsche believed that Western philosophy had emphasized the intellect and minimized the human passions, and the result was this sort of lifeless rationalism. And in this way, Hillman and Ventura are clearly Nietzschean, as a theme of their book is that of resurrecting this Dionysian spirit of madness, but in a way that doesn't drive us insane whilst doing so. You know, we propitiate the gods of insanity by letting in some of the madness. Do not just live, Nietzsche urged us. Live with passion. Do not live a planned, orderly, Apollonian life. Take chances. Even the failures that may, that could, probably will result from these chances can be used to spice up the fair, the often humdrum fair. Nietzsche is not arguing for a totally irrational, passionate life here, though, but a life of reasonable passion, a sort of life worthy of both Apollo and Dionysus, the two brothers, as perhaps many brothers, eventually finding a way to appreciate each other's differences and quirks and maybe, well, at least, at the very least, tolerate them as they both age and mature. And perhaps all of Nietzsche's children are also Freud's children, because Sigmund imported so much of Nietzsche's writing into his own. Nietzsche anticipated Freud by referring to our, quote, barbarian, I would prefer the less morally snooty term like animal or corporal urges, and Nietzsche 
you know, also talked about Das S or, or, or the id, and Freud took that. These Dionysian impulses, which Freud relabeled as primary processes, sounds much more scientific, doesn't it? You know, Dionysian impulses, literature, primary processes, this is now a science. This is not just some story. Well, actually, it is a story, but <laughs> call it primary processes, and it doesn't sound like a story anymore, does it? Um, <laughs> the, the Dionysian impulses, which Freud relabeled as primary processes, were all well and good, as long as they could be modulated by Apollonian rationality and compassion, what Freud called secondary processes. Without the Dionysian influence, the Apollonian aspect of a personality would be without emotional content, and likewise, without the Apollonian influence, the Dionysian aspect of personality would remain formless, as formless as a podcast, um, or as formless as someone drunkenly singing a Take That song at the top of their voice as they stagger home from the pub or the club in the early hours of the Sunday morning, stopping occasionally to puke on someone's rosebush or one of their neighbor's hedges. That kind of formlessness, which is also the formlessness of insanity. Is it any surprise then, as we fast forward 100 or more years from Freud and Nietzsche, that we get people like me, the foot soldiers of the winning ideologues army, uh, Freud, Beck, Rogers, um, telling our clients, who once were patients, to approach the more disruptive Dionysian parts of their psyche with the all-a-welcome inclusiveness of Rumi's guest house. You know the one, this being human is a guest house every morning in your arrival, joy, a depression, a meanness, a momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Well, come and entertain them all. Even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. They may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door with kindness and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. And if all are not welcome, right, if all are not welcome in the way that Rumi is suggesting they should be welcome, and I know of few people who can truly take this completely dispassionate approach to their emotions all the time, well, then we are probably in the domain of avoidance and repression, if all are not welcome, because emotions are just so damn strong and resolute. Uh, they truly are. I think, the prideful trumps of our inner worlds. Writing in Beyond Good and Evil, Nietzsche uh, gives us another salutary dialogue. This time it's between memory and pride. I like this one. It's almost like a joke. Uh, <laughs> so memory goes, yep, I did that. I've done that. Yeah, 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 I did that. Uh, uh. And pride goes, no, 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 no. I, I cannot have done that. No, no, no. That wasn't me. That wasn't me. <laughs> and finally, writes Nietzsche, memory yields. And I suppose Freud, I mean, that's Freud in a nutshell as well. You know, Freud's going like, hmm, where did the memory do the yielding in this, um, in this story? Which turns Freud into a kind of psycho detective as well, as we know, um, trying to find that memory that gave way. And yield we do, for the most part, to all sorts of things, um, to our madness. Uh, 
perhaps the true art is finding, as Hillman and Ventura suggest, a way to yield, to let in some of that salutary, although it might go a little bit OTT at times, but on the whole, hopefully salutary, somewhat functional, reasonable madness, if that doesn't feel like too much of an oxymoron, without going insane. How do you manage to do that in your life? Answers on a postcard. I've always been crazy in the trouble that has put me through. Been busted for things I did and I didn't do. I can't say I'm proud of all the things that I've done. But I can't say I never intentionally hurt anyone. I've always been different, one foot over the line. Taking love and a free living man. 